This is The Fall Line. He was the baby. He was the last one. And I told my mom, how do you want to have another baby? We barely have food. I wasn't mad. But when he born, because he born, you know, premature, when I saw him, oh my God, he was so little that I feel like I have, I have to protect him. We start in Naples, in Collier County, Florida. It's an area in the southwest portion of the state, along the Gulf of Mexico, on Calusa and Seminole land. Naples was named for the Italian city in the late 19th century and is a resort town by design. Its founders imagined a winter resort and built docks and hotels as soon as they were able. And it worked. The Gilded Age elite flocked to Naples to stave off the winter. One hotel even boasts that its first ever guest was Rose Cleveland. She was the sister of the former president, Grover Cleveland. Today in Naples and in Collier County, tourism is big. The county is too. By landmass, it's the largest in Florida. And Naples, the best known city in the county, is one of the wealthiest towns in the United States. But Naples proper is a small area in a big county. We're heading to East Naples, the unincorporated county seat, and more broadly, East Collier, which covers communities like Golden Gate City and further, the town of Immokalee. Some of these areas have a Naples address, but the communities are distinct. Collier County sits along the 40-mile stretch of I-75, known as Alligator Alley. That area covers the drive between Naples and the Florida Everglades. At one point in recent history, the road had a reputation for danger. It crossed over swamps and ran up against wildlife. But nowadays, most find it a placid drive. When you research the area, travel websites pop up describing clear blue water and sand like fine white sugar. Collier County advertises itself as, quote, best known for its quality of life, its beaches, and its tropical climate, with plenty of sunshine, water, and wildlife. The county population is close to 400,000. And as is true in many areas of Florida, Latinx residents make up a significant portion of the community. In this case, over a quarter of Collier County's population. Of the remainder, roughly 60% are white, with Black, Asian, and Indigenous residents all represented in the single digits. There's a strong immigrant community in Collier, too, with 23% of the county's residents born outside the United States. The county's data doesn't get more specific, but the top three countries of origin for Florida's immigrant population are Cuba, Haiti, and Colombia. In Collier County, Immigrants to the United States run dozens of businesses and are significant contributors to the local economy and the county's growth. But because some of these residents are living without documentation, they're met with extra layers of difficulty and danger, whether it's in business or the ability to report crimes or missing persons or assaults. Or more recently, dealing with the beefed up presence of ICE, that's Immigration and Customs Enforcement, in their community. For instance, in 2018, the Naples News Daily reported that residents felt immigration-related arrests were on the rise. One man, Jesus Perez, 
who'd moved to Florida from Mexico as a child, was stopped and detained while he was driving to work. Three other men in the van with him were also taken into custody. And his wife spent the day driving back and forth between the local jail and a detention center in Miami, trying to figure out where her husband was being held. The father of three children, Jesus had been in the process of applying for permanent legal residency at the time of his arrest. And an ICE spokesman told Naples News Daily that there were no random raids or stops happening, that the arrests were targeted. But some residents in Jesus's area said they had photos of ICE agents going from door to door, knocking. Overall, Collier County considers itself to be a low-crime community, and the statistics bear that out. In 2019, Collier reported its lowest crime rate since 1971, and today it maintains its ranking as the safest metropolitan county in Florida. Per WINK News, that remained even with consistent population growth. And Though unsolved murder cases are comparatively rare in Collier County, with one unsolved case every few years or so, the victims don't line up with the population. Out of 39 unsolved murders since the year 2000, 20 are noted as, quote, Hispanic on the Sheriff Department's website. There are also several unidentified bodies whose ancestry has not been determined. The last unsolved homicide in Collier County occurred in 2013 when a man named Moises Perez was murdered while walking down the street at the corner of 7th and Boston in Immokalee. That's about 50 minutes from Naples in the northern reach of Collier County. There was another death more recently, with a case not precisely still open, but not fully resolved. Just south of Golden Gate City in Collier, there's a Super 8 motel. The building sits on Tollgate Boulevard, just off I-75 and in an area that seems designed for travelers. Maps show hotels grouped close together, ringed by no-fuss restaurants like Waffle House and Cracker Barrel. Though that sort of lodging is mostly for people who are just passing through, locals do host parties at hotels, especially young locals. And that's true in Collier County, too. The Days Inn in East Collier was the destination for a woman named Heather King, who attended a party there in May of 2015. At some point during that night, she disappeared. None of her friends knew where she'd gone, and her family couldn't reach her the following morning. The last images of Heather were found on the Days Inn security tape. The news press reports that Heather was seen, quote, crawling over a wall and leaving the grounds. Police were alerted when a clerk saw two men dumping a purse and a cell phone in a nearby dumpster. They began to investigate. But according to WINK News, Heather's father wasn't willing to wait for law enforcement. He went looking for his daughter himself. WINK wrote that he was out searching before the precinct had even finished making the missing person flyers. The day's end where Heather had been seen was in a busy area only a few hundred yards away from the other hotels. Heather's father drove the short distance between hotels and other businesses, scanning parking lots for his daughter. Eventually, he ended up in the lot of the Super 8 Motel, near the wooded area at the back. That's where he saw the buzzards. He was the one to find Heather. According to the news press, he didn't need to get close. He recognized her tattoos from yards away. Heather's father called the police, and when an autopsy was done, 
her cause of death was not clear. Heather had high levels of a number of drugs, including morphine, in her system. The coroner couldn't say that she had overdosed. As far as we can tell, the men who dumped her purse and her phone remain unidentified. Eventually, the news coverage of Heather's case faded away, with many questions still left unanswered. So, the Collier County Sheriff, they were familiar with those woods where Heather King had been found in 2015 and with the Super 8 Motel. And so were the media. The newspapers had covered Heather's case for weeks. And less than a year later, there was another story of another missing person. Search teams arrived at the Super 8 Motel in March of 2016, this time in hopes of finding a missing man. There are roughly 70 listings on the Collier County Sheriff's missing persons page, the earliest dating back to the early 1980s and running all the way through 2020. 38 of those 70 listings identified the missing individual as, quote, Hispanic slash Latino, again, disproportionate to population. If we look at 2016, there are five missing persons cases that still remain open today. The missing persons are three adults and two juveniles. One juvenile, Miguel Emul, is listed as a runaway who, quote, left his custodial home. The other juvenile, Amelia Morales, may have left the county by bus and was possibly traveling with an adult male. As for the adults, 27-year-old Jamie Curtis was last seen walking into a wooded area, carrying a backpack. And there's 53-year-old Cosme Guerrero, who disappeared during Hurricane Matthew. According to WMBF News, Cosme called his family after the hurricane from a shelter in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, but they weren't able to reach him after October 2016. And then there's Salvador Sanchez Ascona. Salvador, better known by his nickname, Chava, disappeared in the late evening hours of Saturday, March 6, 2016. He was seen at a local bar and a party, but failed to make it home. Though in many cases, an adult male would not immediately be assumed missing, the search for Chava began that Monday, when he failed to show up for work. A missing persons report was filed within hours of his missed shift. Chava's friends spread out over East Collier and the Golden Gate area, hoping they'd find him at a friend's house or at a store, maybe eating a late breakfast at a local restaurant. But within a day, they had expanded the search to other places, places where they were less likely to find a living person. They combed through wooded areas, some on horseback and others riding four-wheelers. Within 48 hours of his disappearance, the search parties included dozens, and they covered a lot of ground. Friends spoke on local news about Chava's warmth and kindness and good humor. No one could imagine anyone disliking him or hurting him but they also couldn't imagine him remaining out of contact. Two days after he was reported missing, on March 10th, 2016, the parking lot of the Super 8 Motel was searched, just a few months shy of a year since Heather King's body had been discovered. That's where searchers found Chava's vehicle. The truck, a 2001 Ford pickup, was parked out back in a wooded area, not up front where a guest might leave their car. There was only his truck, and his wallet and keys, which were inside. And there was blood, spattered on the vehicle's interior. But Salvador Sanchez Ascona was nowhere to be found. By then, 
There were flyers and posters printed in English and in Spanish and hung up all over Collier County. Salvador Sanchez Ascona, missing, reward. Tips can be anonymous. The posters featured a picture of Chava leaning over the back of a booth at a restaurant, a beer in one hand, and in the picture, he's smiling. He's described in the police bulletin as a Hispanic 30-year-old male, 5'8 and 170 pounds, with black hair and brown eyes. Later, there will be other pictures on the news. In some, he has a goatee and a mustache. In others, he wore small hoop earrings or a visor. But always the same message. Please call. Missing. In March of 2016, at the time of his disappearance, Chava had been in Collier County for eight years. In that time, he'd built up many strong relationships with the family of his employer, with his co-workers and customers, and with so many other people all over town. At 22 years old, Chava had relocated to Collier from his sister's house in Spartanburg, South Carolina. He'd come down to Florida with an old friend who said there were good job opportunities there. Plus, they had other friends from back in Mexico who were now living in Florida. If the young men were in the state, it would be easier to see them. Chava's sister, Dolores, had been worried. She didn't want him to go. Dolores thought of him as the oldest of her children and didn't want him to be so far from her. But he was confident that he'd build a supportive network in his new town. And he was right. Eight years was plenty of time to make friends, and those friends looked for him for weeks. There was a reward in less than 24 hours. First, $5,000. Then, in a few more days, $10,000. Chava's friend, Aaron Sawyer, appeared on the local news with other searchers. He told the NBC2 anchor, quote, I mean, we love the kid, you know? We just want to see him safe. Chava's boss, J.P. Kuslick, said, quote, There's no reason for him to disappear. We've been out every night looking for him. And there was Taurus Lager, another friend, who organized the horseback search. She said, quote, He isn't the kind of guy to just take off and not answer his phone. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Chava and his sister, Dolores, were born in Puebla, Mexico. They were two of 14 children. Dolores, who you heard at the top of the episode, was 12 years older than Chava. She moved to the United States in 1999 when Chava was still a child. When we spoke to Dolores this spring, she talked to us about Chava's childhood. Their mother passed away when Chava was just seven. At that point, Dolores was newly married and she didn't have the means to support her little brother. So Chava spent his childhood living with various family members, first in Mexico City with a brother and then with another sibling in Veracruz. Dolores was also in Mexico City for a while, and they were able to see each other regularly. But then she moved to the U.S. when Chava was 11. She'd wanted to take him with her, but she couldn't afford it. Not at first. Though their father was still alive, Dolores told us that he was elderly and ill and couldn't care for Chava on his own. 
This is why his siblings were primary caregivers during Chava's childhood. Though they were years apart in age, Chava and Dolores had a special connection, and she truly loved watching him grow up. When she was still at home and when he was able to live near her for a brief time, they spent a lot of time together. They took trips to visit siblings, and when they traveled, Dolores was often mistaken for his mother, though they were only 12 years apart in age. We asked Dolores to describe Chava's personality, especially in childhood, and she remembers him as extremely bright and funny and industrious, even as a small child. Dolores told us about one incident from Chava's early elementary school days. When he was a child, and I'm always asking him, uh, are you not finished the homework? And he said, no, I'm, I'm not finished yet. And I went to the school, and the teacher said, my brother made the homework for like five or six child, and, and he charged that for making the homework. <laughs> He was, uh, I mean, and he said, that is not my fault. They, they want to pay me for make their homework. When Dolores first came to the U.S., she spent time living in Los Angeles and then moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. Eventually, her employer asked her to transfer to Spartanburg, South Carolina, which meant that she could better establish a home that included Chava. By then, which was 2005, Dolores had three children of her own. Once the move to Spartanburg was settled, Dolores called her older brother in Veracruz and told him that she wanted Chava to come to the U.S. And her older brother was wary. He didn't think the trip would be safe for their youngest sibling, but Dolores felt strongly about that move. I know he he is really, really smart and he's going to make a better life in here and he's going to have the, he's going to have the opportunities that we don't have in Mexico. I want to him have things that he doesn't even have when he was a child, you know, and, and job opportunities that we don't have in Mexico, you know. And importantly, Chava wanted to live with Dolores. So in 2005, he joined her in Spartanburg. He lived there with her and her family until 2009 when a friend from Veracruz came to town. At that point, Dolores said that Chava was wanting more freedom, especially as a young adult, and the idea of being closer to his friends in Florida was attractive. Dolores didn't stop him, but she told him to find good friends to build a support network. She was happy when her brother developed a close relationship with his employer, J.P. Kuslick. Chava spent lots of time with J.P., his wife, and their children four-wheeling, fishing, riding horses, and attending weekend barbecues. Dolores told us that she was relieved. You always say that that family was uh, uh, really, you know, protecting him and take care of him all the time. She talked all the time with me, and she said really good things about Miss Janet and, and, he, and, and her husband. I mean, I was okay because I say um, he's not close to me, but he is with somebody who take care of him. He say I'm like you because I'm here and I'm working for in this company like almost twenty years. And he say I'm going to work with them at the same time. 
J.P. Kuslik, who owned a feed store and worked construction and home renovation, first met Chava at a short-term employment office. They developed what J.P. described to us as a father-son relationship. He appreciated Chava's kindness and intelligence and how quickly the younger man picked up new skills. Soon, Chava worked with him in all his various businesses. In fact, Chava lived in a house that J.P. purchased and that they renovated together. Chava moved to the home after being mugged near his old apartment building, and that new home was in the area of Golden Gate City, where he lived with a few roommates who were close to his own age. And that's where he built a life, signing up for night classes, learning to read blueprints, and growing his social circle. He spent much of his free time with the Kuslik family. He very quickly became part of the family. Um, He was around every aspect of our lives and uh, was with us all the time. you know, he'd go on vacations with us. He'd uh, he'd hang out with us. He just liked to, you know, he just liked to be around us. Even when he wasn't at work, he he'd come hang out. You know, I'd throw some. I'd, I'd, I'd call him up and say, "Hey, I'm going to throw something on the grill. You hungry?" He'd show up. You know, um, it, it just we were like I said, he was family. He was he was like a son to me. He was there for family parties, birthdays, holidays, all of it. You know, if he didn't. Hit, If he didn't have plans with friends, he was with me. Saturday, March 5th, 2016, was one of those nights that Chavo was out with his friends. Dolores told us that it had been a rough week. The one-year anniversary of their father's death was coming up on March 7th. And Chava, he'd wanted to go to Mexico the year before when their father had died, but Dolores had said it wasn't a good idea. She was worried that if he went, he might not be able to return to the United States. And that was in 2015. At the time, Chava had accepted Dolores' advice, but she knew that he'd been sorry to miss the funeral and that the anniversary of their father's death would remind him. Her brother would be hurting. So when she first heard that Chava had missed work and that his roommates hadn't seen him, she wasn't panicked, not initially. She thought that it was likely that her brother had gone off by himself to grieve. One day, it was um, March, Seven, the the some of his friends called me. He he saw me on Facebook and she sent a message to me, and and I told her, don't don't worry because she say he doesn't show up to the work or or nobody know nothing about him, and I told and 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 I told her, uh, don't worry. Um, it is, today is the day that my dad passed away. Maybe he's drunk at his house because I, I know this is really hurt. It hurt for him. And, 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 and she said, no, he doesn't show up at home. I mean, and, and I told her, uh, it, it has to be somewhere. Because in the same day that my dad passed away, year ago, the year anniversary, and that 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 was my point. That I told them, I mean, it is, but you know, everybody was uh, was afraid because he was uh, he always was uh, responsible at work and everything. This round of phone calls had started with the J.P. Kuslik. Chava's friend and employer. 
Chava missed work that Monday morning, March 7th, and JP knew it was the anniversary of Chava's father's death. He thought that Chava was more likely to reach out than to shut down and ignore phone calls. After all, Chava generally liked to discuss his problems with his friends. So, JP gave him a call, but Chava's phone went straight to voicemail. He tried again. And again. A lot of those thoughts crossed every, you know, crossed everybody's mind, but um, I knew him better than that. He always knew he could come talk to me. Um, you know, and he always did. Um, so I kind of ruled that one out right away. You know what I'm saying? So when he didn't show up that Monday morning, you knew right away when you couldn't get in touch with him that something was wrong. Oh, I knew immediately. I knew immediately. It was, uh, yeah, by 930 in the morning, um, when his phone just kept ringing, ringing, ringing and he wasn't answering. I'm like, no, no, it's this, no, you know, because even when he was like it, 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 you know, there was a time a couple of months before that he was sick. And, um, so he called me and he says, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make it in. And, um, I says, okay, you all right. And he says, yeah, just not feeling well. I don't know. It was like 11 o'clock in the morning or something like that. I stopped by his house and I went by one of his favorite places and I got him his, I got him his Spanish soup that he liked and I got him a torta. And then I got him some medicines and whatnot. And he says, oh, you didn't have to. You didn't have to. And I said, I wanted to because I knew damn well you weren't going to. And he started laughing. He says, thank you. Thank you. You're always, you know, you're always thinking of me. And I says, yeah. You know, I says, it's what we do. You know, and he'd do the same thing for me. You know, if it, if we were, you know, we were out somewhere or something and it, or I'd get a, I mean, he, I don't know, we were some, we were somewhere a while back before that. And I was, I, it was like a real nasty cough that I'd got. He comes out of the store, you know, we stopped to get some, something, something to drink or something like that. And I'm fueling up my truck and he comes out, he's got his big bag of Hulse cough drops. Gives them to me. And I says, well, let me give you some money. He says, no, 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 no. It's for you. You need them. You know, we always did stuff like that, you know? So like I said, when it, it, you know, that morning, he didn't call me. He didn't show up. I knew damn well something was going on. Can you describe right then, sort of, can you describe where you went looking for him and sort of how you piece things together? What I did was I went by the house first. Okay. Um, went ahead and I, I, you know, um, I got over there. One of the roommates was there. Um, I talked to them and they said that, uh, they said right off the get go, he hadn't even been home. And I said, okay, since when? And they said yesterday. And I said, well, where was he? They said, all he, all they knew was he went to some party. And I said, okay, nighttime, daytime, you know, and they said just a party. That's all they knew. In fact, it was difficult to ascertain exactly where Chava had been. JP called Chava's best friend who told him that the party had been at a local ranch, but that's all he knew. JP decided that he'd better drive by that ranch and see if he could get any further information on Chava's whereabouts. I drove out past the ranch um, and all out through that area looking to see if I could see his truck or anything. And I mean, I was just looking. Never found his truck. Never found him. So I called, I called the ranch and I spoke to the owner and I said, give me some insight. I says, uh, I says, I heard Chava was here yesterday. He says, yeah, he was here for the birthday party. I said, when did he leave? 
And he said, um, six thirty, seven o'clock. I said, was he drinking? He said, yeah, everybody was. I said, was he, you know, what was, what was, was he okay? Was he sick? Was he, no, he was good. I says, okay. I'm hoping he's telling me everything. So then I go from there, just go driving around, looking, looking. I mean, I'm scouring all over Golden Gate City, Golden Gate Estates, out through that area. I'm just trying to find, at this point, I'm trying to find the vehicle. Called some other friends of mine that, that I know, um, you know, that, that knew him and people that he would do some side work for and stuff like that. And, and I mean, I called everybody I knew to call. And they said, nope, hadn't seen them, hadn't seen them. Went over and checked my job site. We were working at that, you know, that particular time. I said, well, maybe he went over there without calling me. Maybe he's got his music blaring and can't hear me. I, you know, so I reached out to, I went back over and I talked with another roommate that was there. I went back by the house again. I talked to another roommate and I says, I says, Hey, I know he didn't come home. I said, but have you heard from him? He says, no. And I said, okay. I said, well, did, did anybody see him last night? They said, yeah, we saw him over at the eight ball lounge. I said, the eight ball lounge. I says, did he talk to you? No, they didn't talk to, he didn't talk to me because he's, I guess this guy's the DJ. And I said, okay. I said, uh, how long was he there? He said, couple minutes that I saw. So I went over to the eight ball lounge to talk to some people over there. He said, Travel was looking to, he was looking for something specific. He was looking to score some coke. And I said, well, that's peculiar because that's not him. So that's all we know. This information was confusing to JP and to Chava's other friends. To their knowledge, he had no involvement with cocaine, not using and not selling. The idea that he would go into a local bar openly seeking drugs and then leave so quickly, that was equally strange. JP decided to continue through the area and check in at other establishments that Chava frequented. I checked over at the Tiki Bar, which is the next one in line. They said, yes, he was there. I said, how long? They said, about three, four minutes. So I went down to the little Vietnamese bar and I went in and I talked to the waitress in there. She happened to be working that night. And I said, do you know this guy? And she says, yeah. She says, that's Chava. He was here last night. She said he was looking for Coke. And she said, Chava, that's not you. What are you doing? And he said, I just need to find some Coke. And she said, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? I don't understand. She said he was the only one in the, the only one that got out of the vehicle and came inside. She, but she also confirmed he got into a, a dark colored Dodge truck. But Chava didn't drive a Dodge truck. If you'll recall, his vehicle was a blue Ford. So in addition to Chava's strange behavior that night, it seems that he'd been with someone after he reportedly left the party at the ranch. So that was between 1.15 and 1.30 in the morning, where I pretty much just kind of, that's as late as I could get to following his steps. From there, he, you know, nobody else had seen him. So I called, I called the ranch again, and I said, now tell me the truth. I said, because he, when he left there, he didn't just leave on his own. When I called him back and spoke to him, he said, he said that they had, um, it took his truck and dropped it off at um, Sunshine Ace Plaza. And I said, okay. 
where'd you go from there? And he said, we dropped his truck off there and he said he wanted to go. He was going to go to, um, he was going to go out. And then he walked from there and went on to wherever he was going. I says, really, that's the last time you saw him. Yep. I said, look, I don't know what the deal is. I don't care. I just want to know where he is. He said, I don't know. And he hung up on me. After that point, did you go check out the plaza that he claimed his truck was dropped off in? Checked out the plaza, checked out the woods. I checked out everything. At that point, I was driving my truck through the woods. Um, you know, I'd stop wherever I couldn't get, if I couldn't take the truck any further, I'd go to any place I could think of that they could possibly hide a vehicle because I knew there was foul play. I knew it in my heart. At that point, you felt like his life was in danger. Yes. And with the growing feeling that his friend was in trouble, J.P. Cuslick called the police and so did his wife. They were determined to file a missing persons report, but they ran into trouble that could have, and in other cases has, derailed an entire investigation. Next time on The Fall Line, the story of Chava's disappearance continues with the opening of his missing persons case and the discovery of his truck, plus the leads that would point police towards several areas of interest. In the meantime, if you have any information concerning the disappearance of Salvador Chava Sanchez Ascona, please contact the Collier County Sheriff's Office at 239-774-4434. There's a $10,000 reward in his case. We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken the time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd and to Rebecca C., a Naples local that helped with the town layout. Thanks to Nancy Rivera, who did translation work for these episodes. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Research assistants are Kim Fritz, Lex Weathers, and Brian Warders. Special content advisement by Guadalupe Lopez. Our regular content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. You can find Fallline merchandise in the Exactly Right Podswag store. Mm-hmm.